You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Let us turn this evening to the book of Titus. Book of Titus, chapter 1. If you are in your pew Bibles, it should be page 998. Remember, Paul is writing here to a a pastor, fellow minister of the gospel who is left in Crete. Paul and Titus ministered together in Crete. Paul left and he's now writing back with instructions how to continue the ministry on the island of Crete. Paul's encouraging Titus to be faithful in this ministry against the pressures of the world that are pushing against the church. And he's asked, as we saw last time, he's asked Titus to bring order to the churches. And the first order of business is to appoint elders. So we're going to look at that this evening, what this eldership should look like in the church. Well, our sermon text comes from verses 6 through 9 of chapter 1, but let's read beginning in verse 5 for the fuller context. Hear now the word of the Lord from Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. The English word anarchy is derived from Latin, and then before that, from Greek word anarchos. An meaning no or without, and arche meaning ruler. Thus, without a ruler. Anarchy is a form of government where there is no one in charge. It's been developed into a political theory that emphasizes the absolute autonomy of the individual. It is a utopic vision of what human existence could be if if we were all completely free. Nobody told us what to do, and we could live without restraints. Sounds great, maybe on paper, for half a second until you think about it. Because there are many problems with anarchy as a practical matter. There's no stability. The strongest person ends up being a de facto ruler. So it's impossible to achieve, and it's utterly destructive to even try to get to this point of living by anarchy. And despite its supporters' best arguments, there is a reason anarchy has never been, has never produced a thriving civilization. The point is, we need leaders. Not of an evil despotic kind, but we need leaders to bring order to society, and we also need that in the church. And this is exactly what Paul is instructing Titus to do, to make sure that each church here on the island of Crete, it could be dozens, that each one has a governing body of elders in place. Christ gives us, Christ as the king of the church, He gives us elders to bring order to his church 
so that we all can grow in Christ. And so we're going to look at two things this evening as Paul explains this ministry and the qualifications of the elder. First is the work of the elder, and second is the qualifications of the elder. So let's consider the work of the elder as we find it in our passage this evening. The elder has three titles or descriptions given to him in this passage. The first one is elder. In verse 5, to appoint elders to this office in the church. An elder, the, the most literal meaning of this Greek word is old man. So appoint old men, he tells them. It's not speaking, though, generically of older men. Speaking of a particular office to appoint men to. Now, the elder, an old man, in the Jewish and Greek societies was a respected position, an esteemed position. They were a group that people looked up to, and they held some if uh, some informal, if not even formal, influence and authority in society. Elders were imitated, looked up to, respected, relied on for stability and leadership, for their exemplary life. They were honored for their wisdom. Their very presence in society of elders was a part of what they were, uh, were, were, what they were helpful for. They were just being there as examples, as mature, godly men. They helped society. But here in the church, this office of elder isn't necessarily old men, although it can include that. It includes others like them who their very presence is a ministry to the church. They set that example imitation and godly living. So the first, we see the first thing of what elders are doing is by this uh, analogy in secular society of the elder. The second here, we have overseer. Verse seven, Paul speaks of these men as overseers. He seems to be using the term interchangeably, elder and overseer. An overseer has, um, has particular functions that he is to do. An overseer is responsible for the spiritual care of the flock for discipleship and discipline, encouraging teaching that is right. An overseer is visiting and knowing the members of the flock. This word overseer is also the Greek word where we get the word episcopal from, episkopos. And so often in the church, there's discussion of is, is a bishop and episkopos, is that different from an elder? And so, no, we think Paul is speaking of them as one and the same here. Bishops and elders, the same idea. Bishop just speaks more of the function an elder, more of a description of the office itself. But as an overseer, there's a lot that goes into this function. We can also think of the function of shepherding. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, he says, I exhort the elders among you to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So that same word oversight, exercising oversight, is the same word here for overseer. So part of being an overseer is to shepherd that image of kingly rule and care and tender love for the flock. That's what an overseer is to do. We, in Acts 20 that we read earlier, these elders in Ephesus are to care for the flock. Paul writes in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, we get the same word there, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So there's a care is associated with this office of overseer, an elder. So they're called overseers because of this. And then the third uh, title or description of their function is also in verse 7. For an overseer as God's steward. 
So these elders are called God's stewards. And this immediately has a household imagery come into play. The, the household steward was the one who would was under the master who would manage all of the household affairs for him. He served the entire household by managing what the master had given him, taking care of these things that are not his. He's a, a servant of the master. And so these elders are servants of the master. They're to take care of something that's not theirs. They don't serve in their own name or for their own glory, but for God's glory. And Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that elders are stewards of the mysteries of God. They're stewards of the mysteries of God. They're to ensure that everybody understands the mysteries of God, the gospel itself, who Christ is and what he's done. So this is part of the charge to elders is to ensure that this is faithfully known among the congregation. So we have these three titles and descriptions about some of the functions that they're to do, but there's two uh, express commands in our passage as well that are given to show us the work of an elder. And they both come in verse nine. First, he says that they are to be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. So elders must be teachers. An elder must know sound doctrine, biblical doctrine. He must be stable and filled with wisdom. He, people want to go to this man to hear what he has to say about God's word. So he's a teacher of God's word. He must know God's word. And then the second function that's described here is the corollary of knowing right doctrine is that he must be able to rebuke those who contradict it. So not only does he hold up positively what scripture teaches, teaches, but he also must rebuke those who refuse to believe that, those who hold up another contrary doctrine. He has to have the ability to fight back against false teaching. And again, we read this earlier from Peter or from Paul addressing the, um, the Ephesian elders. He wrote, starting in verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So there's twisted things coming in, twisted doctrine coming into the church. And it's the elder's job to stamp it out, to not allow it to come in and wreak havoc upon the church. Or as Paul says, to draw away the disciples. Because as Martin Luther said, bad theology is a cruel taskmaster. Bad theology now requires something of you that the gospel does not. It's a cruel taskmaster master, as it harms God's people. So these elders must be able to rebuke sound, uh, unsound teaching, holding fast and teaching what is true and rebuking what is false. So imagine, imagine a society without these things, without an elder an overseer, a steward, somebody teaching what is right and rebuking what is wrong. Imagine a society, a Christian society without this kind of leadership. How thankful we are that God has given us order in the church by giving us leaders. Leaders who are not about power grabs or their own glory and growing their influence and prestige, but those who are servants, stewards, errand boys for Christ who love and care for the church. So what do we do, that, do with this as, as members of, of Redeemer Church? Well, I'd ask you to help us, elders, to help us with this, to remind us of these things, encourage us 
when it, we may seem like we're, we're in a place where we're not doing these things as effectively as we ought to. Maybe we're being sidetracked or, or doing other things. Encourage us, maybe even rebuke us. Call us back to making sure we, even as elders, are on track doing the right thing. But you should know that despite our sin, our weaknesses, the blind spots that we do have, know your elders do love you. Your elders do care for the flock. And above all, we want your spiritual good, every single one of you. It's a great privilege to serve in this capacity. And we desire the glory of God and the good of God's people. So we have this work of the elder. Much more can be said, but let's move to the qualifications of the elder. What, what in this passage we see that helps us know who should be an elder. If this is what an elder does, who should be appointed and ordained as such? Well, the text has a number of requirements. In fact, most of this text is just listing out requirements. And so we're not going to go requirement by requirement and, and go in deep. But I want us to look at uh, some, some overarching themes and first is the requirement of being above reproach. I think this is the catch-all requirement. It's, it's repeated in verses 6 and verse 7. He must be above reproach. What this means is really he's not blamable, not blameworthy. There's no legitimate charge against him that can stick. Of course, this isn't a standard of perfection because nobody is perfect. But his life must be a good example of godly living. Period. It must, this is a absolute requirement for elders in Christ's church. They must be above reproach. So under this, he's going to fill it out with a couple of, of different things. And the first is he speaks of family matters. A family must be in order. First, he speaks of marriage. As an elder must be a husband of one wife. Now, this doesn't require an elder to be married, but if an elder is married, he must be a husband of one wife. On its face, this clearly means he can't be a polygamist. He can't have multiple wives, which maybe was an issue in the first century. And so men who, before they came to Christ, had multiple wives. Once they came to Christ, they were not qualified or able to, have, uh, to, to be a leader in Christ's church. But I think this also means more than that. This also means one who is faithful to his wife as well. One who is not unfaithful to his wife. Not an adulterer. So he must be a husband of one wife. The second requirement here with regard to family is that his children are believers. Now this has tripped up uh, many people, and there's lots of questions about this phrase, um, but this is what it says in verse six. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. I do happen to think that the King James translation here gets at this uh, from a better angle. The King James says, um, that the elder must have faithful children. Because the Greek word here translated in the ESV as believers, it is a word that can either mean someone who has faith or somebody who is faithful. And so the classic debate is, is this requiring elders' children to, be, children to be Christians, or is it simply requiring the children of elders to be obedient and to be faithful and to be under his authority in an appropriate way? And I, I think it's the latter for a couple of reasons. First, we cannot determine whether our children are believers or not. It's not within our power. We need, they need the recreating power of God's grace in their hearts to make them believers. No parent can make their children believers. 
So for one, we are not capable of assuring that. But second of all, this phrase is is expanded upon uh, with, with another clause, saying these children are not to be open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So it's getting here at behavior. They must not have extreme behavior that is unbecoming to an elder in the church. And so it's speaking there of behavior, not their own faith. But then third, the third reason is that there's a parallel passage in Timothy chapter three. And there, Paul to Timothy is laying out the requirements for elder. And he doesn't say it the exact same way as he says it here. There, he says, he, this elder, must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And so again, we see there primarily an an action. Uh, We see the actions of the children that are under scrutiny, not their salvation, not their heart, but an elder must be able to manage his hold his own household. That's what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I think that's the point of this whole section, speaking of household, is that if a man can't lead his family and be faithful to his own wife and family, how can he lead Christ's flock? And so we must look at a man in his management and leadership of his own home. So he must have faithful children and must be a husband of one wife. So from there, Paul goes on to have six character prohibitions in verse seven. So we have the overarching above reproach. One facet of this is family and and household management. And now he's listing a litany of things that are prohibitions, six character traits that are pitfalls for many men. And let me just read them in verse seven. An overseer is God's steward, must be above reproach, as he repeats. And now on to the six negatives. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. So all six of these things are prohibitions. If a man is any of these things, he is not fit for the office of elder. And again, these are pitfalls for many men. And in fact, if you've been following the evangelical culture for much time, You've seen a lot of of, uh, instances where Christian leaders exhibit these traits. I think um, the better way to understand the word violent, so not violent, uh, maybe a better way to say that is not a bully. It's not simply that he beats people up with his fists, but someone who doesn't beat people up with his words either. He can't be this kind of leader who comes in and overpowers others. He can't come in and his top blow off and be quick-tempered. He can't be a drunkard. He can't be arrogant. Things all too common in so many churches across our land. And so if any of these things are present, he is not qualified. But then he moves from these negative character traits to positive character requirements in verse eight. And there doesn't seem to be any uh, particular order he's putting these in, but he's lumping them all together and, and, and upholding the kind of man that is above reproach. These are examples of a man who fulfills that requirement of, of, with, of above reproach. He is, according to verse eight, hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. This is a man who's above reproach. This is a man who may be fit to serve Christ's church as an elder. And so much of this, you'll notice, is taken up with character. 
His character, his living is so vitally important. If he doesn't live in this way, he cannot be an elder in Christ's church. And then we come to the final requirement. And so we have character on one hand, and the final requirement is theological knowledge and conviction. We come to verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. And this goes hand in hand with that requirement that he must be able to teach and rebuke false teaching. And so to do that, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Now, he says it in this way because at this time, there was nothing that like what we call the New Testament. There's no collection of these documents yet. They had the apostles' teaching. All they knew was what Paul preached. And maybe some of these men were back in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and they were converted there. And so maybe they heard Peter preaching as well, but they had access to the apostolic teaching, not the New Testament documents, but they were called to be faithful to what they had heard from the apostles. In the same way now, as we have the apostolic record in the New Testament texts, elders must be faithful to the apostolic teaching as we have God's word. There must be conviction though must hold firm to it. He must not be like Jello, moving about left and right, back and forth, not, not really knowing what he believes, slippery or anything of that sort. But he must hold fast with firm conviction, understanding God's word and holding it tightly for dear life. So we have the character requirements and then we have a theological requirement, a biblical understanding requirement as well. And sometimes we look at this and sometimes think, well, they elders have to be super Christians, right? Elders are on this other level, uh, other playing field for most of, uh, for, for other Christians. Uh, they're, they're a higher tier, but that's not at all what Paul says. And in fact, what Paul says here is not really all that extraordinary. These are things that I think are attainable for every single Christian can be able to do these things, right? It's what we all are striving for. But it is true, not all Christians have obtained this level of maturity. But falling short of this standard does not mean one is not a Christian, right? God's grace is amazing. It covers all of us, even when we fall, even if we're not fit or able to serve in this office. And it's an encouragement to all of us that we need to go to the cross. We all need God's grace. Elders, especially, because we're not perfect. We're full of sin as well. I think for Redeemer Church, this has particular application for all churches, but here particularly because congregations must be obedient in nominating and electing qualified elders. Redeemer Church, as you probably know, we're moving towards beginning the process of congregational, of a congregational nominating process. And this process of having new elders coming on at Redeemer and deacons as well begins with nominating. You will have an opportunity in the coming months to nominate men that you think are fit for office, that are qualified for office. And we must use this rubric to determine whether men are qualified or not. And so if you're going to nominate somebody, you must only put men on your nomination that fit these requirements, that pass these requirements that biblically are qualified to serve. So begin praying now that the Lord would give members wisdom if he's raising up new elders in the church, as I pray he is. And so this is the rubric we will use for all those who are nominated. And then ultimately, when it comes to election by the congregation, 
You have to determine if every single person that stands for election fits these qualifications. It's a high task. It's an important task. And we must be faithful and obedient to this for the glory of God and for the good of his church. So we see from this passage, elders serve and bring order to the church. They serve with their leadership and with their example. And there are these two primary requirements, one of Christian living, godly living, and one of strong theology, both biblical understanding and conviction. Christians who have one without the other, godly living without strong theology, are imbalanced. Those righteous living without that proper understanding of God and salvation are not living truly righteously at all because they're living for, the fa- for false reasons. It's all an external show. But if you have good theology with, with bad living, without the godly living, shows that your theology isn't truly taken to heart. And at best, it's an immature faith that needs growth and sanctification. And so let us all strive for this. Godly living and biblical conviction and understanding, strong theology. And of course, it's when we see ourselves in light of our sin, in light of the grace of God, when we understand doctrine this way, that propels us to respond in righteous living. It is understanding and apprehending the doctrine of God's grace, not just in our head, but with our whole being, with our affections, with our desires, that then we walk out Christian living in the world. So let us all hold fast to Jesus Christ. Let us all hold fast to that trustworthy word that we have received from him, that he offers salvation and ongoing nourishment to sin-sick souls. And let us come to Christ and cling to him, our head. Let us let him make us, remake us after his own image. And let us rejoice that he puts us in a place of order. A church with order, not a church with anarchy, but a church with order, with leaders who love the church where we all can grow and thrive. Let us give thanks to him and let us look to him in prayer. We thank you, Father, that Jesus Christ reigns over us and he has set up leaders to be an encouragement to us, to help us and to provide order for Christ's church here on earth. We pray that you would bless your leaders, give us wisdom insight, godliness, discernment, courage. And I thank you for Redeemer Church. And I pray that all of the members would understand this role, this office, and encourage us in it. Admonish us where we may go astray and be faithful to their call to elect men who are qualified by your word. Oh Lord, build us up. Use your leaders to do that. And all of the church together, as we grow up together into our head, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.